0: Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a senior science writer here at TN and I will be your host for today's podcast. I'm delighted to have my colleague Laura Lansdowne joining me today. How are you, Laura?
1: I'm really good, thank you. How are you, Rory? You all right?
0: Yeah, I'm good. On Opinionated Science, we pick out some of the most exciting studies to have been released in the last few weeks giving you an espresso shot of science without the caffeine jitters of excessive jargon. And today we are discussing dog breeds and morning sickness during pregnancy. Is that right, Laura?
1: Yeah, that is nausea and vomiting during pregnancy. Nausea
0: and vomiting during pregnancy. So Laura, you own a dog and are pregnant. So I'm tempted to just shut up for the rest of the podcast and let (laughs) you take the, the expert seat. We have our our listeners watching today as well in our little promotional video here. So maybe you could share share a picture if you if you've got a picture of you of a little Kev, Kevin the Corgi. Yeah, I
1: do. Here we go. Hang on. There he is.
0: Look Kevin the corgi him.
1: loving Look life. That.
0: Yeah. And so
1: yeah.
0: Kevin is a, a regular feature of uh of TN video calls and, and audio calls, mainly because his barks at the postman are such a regular and unavoidable feature of being in the same house with them, and with Laura, he is testify. very,
1: yeah, very loud and very low dog. Yes, he's got a big voice. So,
0: and uh, I'm looking forward to talking today about how Kevin's breed as a corgi might be less important than just the fact that he's a little rascal himself, but he's <laughs> just uh, just wanted to be annoying. But uh, before mm-hmm. we get into pooches and pregnancy, it's time for another story from Lab Confidential. Now, Every lab has its tales of oh shit moments where fire alarms are set off, centrifuges become totally unbalanced and rip themselves apart, or thousands of pounds worth of expensive reagents end up smashed on the floor. Now, these are the tales which everyone in science has, but no one really wants to talk about publicly. It's like the the true mythos of science. And on Lab Confidential, we take the best stories our listeners send in and read them out to reveal the secrets of what goes on behind the scenes in your average lab. today's story which has been sent by one of our listeners comes from chris so thank you very much chris um i've got a story in front of me so i'll just be reading it out now so chris mm-hmm. says for those of you unfamiliar with postgraduate chemistry i'm personally unfamiliar with postgraduate chemistry which i'm very glad about uh but imagine which chris imagines a few of our listeners aren't familiar with postgraduate chemistry i think that's probably right chris it's important to start by saying that in my particular lab a significant number of the reactions had to be performed under nitrogen. That is, they had to fill the reaction chamber with nitrogen to prevent the byproducts and products degrading in air, and at any one time we therefore had three cylinders nitrogen hooked up and ready to go. As part of our responsibilities in the lab, we had to remove and replace the empty cylinders, which is easy for most labs but not so much for mine. We had an overly enthusiastic third-year PhD who for whatever reason, hadn't grasped how to change a cylinder. The protocol for changing cylinders in my lab had to be modified to account for this. The modified protocol went something like this. The job of person one was to identify the empty cylinder and then notify person two, and then person two would be the chief distractor. So his or her job would be to distract the enthusiastic third year and ideally get him <laughs> out of the lab, practices included. Needing their urgent assistance in the computer lab, this was not ideal as it could end up taking well over an hour. Oh having, <laughs> having to urgently show them a meme uh, on their phone and, <laughs> and uh, correctly timing the coffee break to distract them. Okay, so they had, all these, uh, they had all these roles for person two and person one's job was to fit the cylinder as quickly as possible without the third year PhD noticing. Now, Chris says, this approach was successful on all but one occasion. Having been given an empty cylinder by mistake, I made the error of leaving it unattended. Arriving back in the lab, I found the third year PhD hitting the cylinder head with a rubber mallet in an attempt to get it to work. Oh, it, was at this point, it was at this point we opted to update the protocol to include another person to stand guard. <laughs> I quickly realised that not all PhD students are equal.
1: oh wow okay yeah I love it I love it
0: it. oh yeah no I haven't had to do much work with nitrogen cylinders and certainly in my brief time in the lab wasn't allowed to uh, fix them myself but um, I'm very glad now that I wasn't given that responsibility it could have ended ended extremely badly I think
1: yeah, no, I didn't have any experience. We had CO2 canisters because we used to um, use Drosophila melanogaster. So we would like knock, well, we call it knock knock them out um, on little pads, which were um, supplied with CO2, but dragging those cylinders around was hard enough. But yeah, we didn't need a, we didn't need a guard. We didn't need, although some, there was one individual actually that spent too much time in that room and I think he'd inhaled too much CO2 himself. So he was a little bit... <laughs> so you had to kind of time the amount of time you spent in there with the flyers otherwise you yeah. kind of felt the you effects yourself but no yeah. there was no guards or kind of ninja activities needed for that so let
0: see well <laughs> it's, it's always good to hear of these interesting un, unusual lab protocols so thank you mm-hmm. so much for sharing your story Chris now uh it's time for our stories now so if it's okay Laura I think I can go first yeah um, absolutely talk a little bit about dog breeds so mm-hmm. like I said I'm going to be discussing different types of dog breeds and Dog breeds, as we kind of know and think about them, are actually a kind of Victorian invention. Before 150 years ago, of course, there were dog breeds, you know, dogs like Chihuahuas and Salukis are, are ancient breeds of dog. But prior to, yeah, roughly 150, 160 years ago, dogs were kind of selected for in the basis of their behaviour rather than exactly the way they looked. So you might have had dogs that were bred as guard dogs or dogs that were bred as lap dogs, like a Pekingese, for example. Um But 150 years ago, Victorians who were really kind of creepily into eugenics and stuff, and I think breed design was slightly related to that, got a real interest in writing down exactly how dog breeds should look and be physically presented. And ever since then, dogs have been selected on the basis of their physical characteristics. And if you think about that, that means that about 50 to 80 generations of dogs since then have been bred based on their looks and their their physical presentation. So the effect of this strict breeding has, it's been controversial, I think it's fair to say. So what has led to an amazing variety of dogs for a potential dog owner to select from, it's also meant that certain breeds are plagued with uh, heritable genetic conditions that might have been avoided if the breed did not have to stick so loosely to meeting particular physical breed standards. Now, one key benefit of breeds that breeders often Uh, talk about is that by slightly different breeds, it means you can sort of better predict what kind of dog you're going to get. If you, uh, for example, get a a greyhound, you can expect it to be more docile and burn off the energy very quickly, whereas uh, a smaller dog might be more active and uh, ferocious with a, a small toy or something. But it means that as a society, we ascribe a huge weight to breed when it comes to choosing a dog. Uh, however, a new study, which was produced by researchers at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, suggests that the contribution of breed to a dogs' behaviour is far less significant than it is regularly thought to be. Now, the first thing I should say about this is it's a really big study. So, uh, the researchers who were uh, led by Eller Carlson, who's one of the directors of the vertebrate genomics lab at the Broad, um, took samples from 2000 dogs' genomes and mm-hmm. uh, survey data from a further twenty thousand dogs so they have created this site called darwin's arc which uh, you know readers i'll put pop in pop in the show notes a link to that site and readers who have dogs can even now go in and fill in a, a short survey about well, not actually that short it's 100 questions cool. uh, i might I'll do that jump, later Sure, <laughs> if you've got the time to fill out 100 survey questions but it, it covers all aspects of a dog's behavior so uh, okay i think if my maths is right that means they've got 2 million survey question responses if people have filled out the 100 questions so this is a lot of data but they've essentially used that massive survey data pool to see how different traits and behaviors relate to the genome now Mm -hmm. uh, what the researchers found in their initial analysis where they looked at uh, single breed dogs so for example you know look at the owners that said I have a pedigree lab so I'm absolutely certain that is this particular dog breed or other owners that may, maybe, you know, had a dog that maybe wasn't pedigree, but thought it was a particular dog breed and was was found to be later by analysis. Uh, they looked at how those dogs' behaviour is linked to their breed. Now, what they found was that physical traits uh, did have a strong link, which is what you'd expect. You know, two Great Danes have a Great Dane puppy is going to be a big dog, mm-hmm. um, whereas you wouldn't expect that with two Chihuahua parents. <laughs> no, um, I mean unless unless something's gone extremely yeah, weirdly wrong, you actually. never know. <laughs> I, think, I think um you know. I know there's there's some dogs that have bad reputations for behavior and stuff, but I, I can't think of a, 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 a an existing breed that could be more terrifying than a giant Great Dane sized Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they are sassy, but, aren't they? I think. They are, well, they've they got are, they've got that kind of yeah. They are persona. sassy, Laura.
0: That's that's what I remember. <laughs> um, so they also looked at kind of motor traits as well. So this is things like Kevin, Kev's favourite, uh, barking. Um, and yeah. They found that this is, again, more strongly linked. So, um, you know, huskies, for example, were found to howl and bark quite regularly mm-hmm. and other dogs were, were less likely to. But interestingly, they didn't find any traits that no breed, let me get this right. They didn't find any traits that weren't done by a particular breed. So even labs, okay. Labrador Retrievers, who were the least likely to bark, they still found that 8% of lab owners said that their their dog uh, sometimes regularly barked. So um, okay. that kind of gives you a hint that things aren't as clear-cut as, as we might have expected. Mm-hmm. But moving on from these motor traits and looking instead at behavior, um, there was even less of a link between breed and uh, variation in outcome. So to capture dog behavior is obviously a a pretty mammoth task. Um, And the researchers working in uh, tandem with researchers from uh, dog breeding charities uh, managed to come up with this bank of hundred questions that could then be divided into eight factors. So these were different aspects of dog behavior that were designed to kind of separate out uh, dog behavior from the kind of intention that owners might put onto it. So the factors were things like human sociability, arousal level, toy direction, bidability, um, how quickly the dogs got worked up if there was something that was scaring them, um, sociability of other dogs. Ice cream
1: is Kev's fear. Yeah,
0: there you go, <laughs> exactly. You're coming into ice cream season as well, Laura, so it's I gonna... know,
1: and it stops right outside my house, so it's his worst nightmare.
0: <laughs> tough, tough summer. I know. Uh, so all of these factors i think it was interesting how they, they picked the factors mm. but i think i think a lot of it makes sense they for example mm-hmm. didn't measure aggression directly but i think that would be quite difficult too because I'd, i can imagine that a lot of dog owners might not answer in much detail about their dog's aggressiveness or be less willing to and also yeah. aggression aggression is such a, a a varied trait i think as well like the aggression of a, a bigger dog might manifest itself very differently from the aggression of a smaller dog so mm-hmm. um, so it's, mm. it's interesting how they've categorized all these different aspects of dog behavior, but they've they've come up with these, these different factors. And the the result for looking at these single breeds that I mentioned they were looking at earlier was that for the great majority of dogs, breed didn't make much impact on how the dog behaved. Now, the researchers uh, wanted to then kind of get past the, the obvious flaw in a survey based study, which is that. While owners know their dogs very well they can also be a little bit biased and also be exposed <laughs> to the kind of stereotypes that we're talking about at the start of the study so uh actually as it happens um I and my partner are looking for uh, a dog um will hopefully yeah. be getting one soon and um looking at all the the different stereotypes and behaviors at Different breeds, you know, you're you're assailed with it instantly when you you go to search for a, a Chow Chow, for example, you know how aloof they are and how you know it's not gonna mm-hmm. go chasing after a toy or something. Um, yeah. so this means that all responses are already influenced by that bias. So they took a I think quite a smart innovation, which was to use the half of uh, the survey respondents that didn't have pedigree dogs, but instead had mutts, and they took a sample of the mutts that had less than forty five percent of their genome from any one particular breed. Uh, now the thing about this sample is of course that owners don't can't reliably guess with that smaller contribution from one breed, what breeds make up their their dog, so they have less okay. um, less stereotypes and assertions about what kind of behaviors their dog might have. Mm-hmm. So for example, they were able to show that whilst um owners who had uh, Labradors and golden retrievers were more likely to say that the dog um was friendly towards strangers they showed that mutts that had a greater proportion of Labrador um, history and and, and breed history weren't necessarily friendlier to strangers. It was more just that the the stereotype was perceived by owners to be be friendlier. Mm -hmm. So it enabled them to break down the heritability of the trait. That's how much weight can be assigned to genetics when thinking about how these traits vary in a dog population. And they calculated that whilst most behavioral traits were heritable, um, there was quite a few behavioral traits with a heritability greater than 25%. Just 9% of the variation in behavior could be explained by breed alone. And okay. there's a couple of things that are quite important to mention here. That 25% figure, and it went up to 30% for things like biddability, like how likely a dog was to do what you told it to do. That's quite significant, really, because behavior is really complex. is a trait, content, you know, controlled by many different genes so it's quite a remarkable finding to get that level of control but what it did show is that breed that 150 years of strict selection towards a breed standard hasn't actually had that much effect and what the researchers said was that it's much more likely to be the thousands of years of previous domestication you know thinking about um collies for example are shown to be more biddable than your average dog and of course collies now and collies in the past have been selected because of their working dog traits and the fact that they were mm-hmm. biddable you can ask them to herd sheep herd mm. uh, farm Corgis animals used and
1: to herd cattle as well so yes that yeah. blows my mind they are herders but... too yeah i think that that's why could... they're so low <laughs>
0: bred so, yeah, exactly. so they don't get kicked but they yeah, don't get kicked. yeah. <laughs> aerodynamic aerodynamic <laughs> um and the other thing to mention is just that i think you know, some, some, someone might say, listen to this, well, well, if it's such a significant, you know, 9% still high. But I think uh, in general, when we discuss breeds, you know, I think you mentioned earlier sassy chihuahuas, uh, the American Kennel Club, for example, give three words to describe every single dog breed in their, in their dictionary. Would you have three words to describe, Kevin?
1: I would say Reactive. Mm-hmm. He's very reactive to things. Um, you asked me you asked me to think about this earlier, so I've written a few words down. Unique. Is
0: just, unique. There you go. He's just
1: not. He's, he's not. He's, there's no one else like him. Um, and alert. Like I I would say he's quite alert or observant of things going on. So observant, reactive, and unique, unique. I would say. Yeah. I love
0: that. That. yeah well the, the American Kennel Club have a, a true of words for every single breed and I think okay you know it's just such a strong connection and 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 you know when, when I wrote this article earlier in the month and you can like read the article in the link below this podcast you know a lot of people said I don't I don't agree with this my my dog is exactly like the breed standard and I think the thing to take away is that really you have to look at as dogs as individuals and they are mm-hmm. should really have that unique uh, behavior classifier on all of them because they are individuals that you just as when the author said you just have to learn how to to live with that individual so mm-hmm.
1: definitely you know, yeah
0: for a lot of yeah. behaviors don't think your dog's personalities can be mapped out before you even get it i think is the the takeaway
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely. I think with Kevin as well, like there's certain things that they obviously associate with corgis, like herding. He's very much, he, well, no, no cattle anymore, but humans. He's quite (laughs) partial to herding a human or two in our household. Um, And loud, obviously he's very loud, but like in terms of exercise, they always say that the breed needs a lot of walking and exercise. Whereas I would say Kevin, he's quite happy with a 20 minute stroll around the block. Um, He's more into like sniffer like sniffing and kind of scent training and things like that so I think they're it, they are completely unique really aren't they and it's just kind mm-hmm. of yeah figuring out what their little personality is and kind of their strengths and weaknesses and things they need kind of work on like barking
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah like barking Laura but I know you wanting to talk about pregnancy and morning sickness
1: mm-hmm. yeah so um obviously I'm pregnant at the minute almost 34 mm-hmm. weeks, so we're getting there, third trimester, so I'm nearly there. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was obviously nausea and vomiting during pregnancy, morning sickness. I was really lucky and somehow managed to escape sickness during my first trimester. So obviously that's kind of the, the first 12 weeks of pregnancy is when you kind of usually hear about women or or people who are pregnant um, experiencing sickness, um, about 70 to 80%. Mostly, like I said, this is limited to the first trimester, but there are some individuals that these symptoms go into their second and third trimester, Mm. all the way right up until delivery, which I just think, oh, Mm. awful. Like, I think the 12 weeks is hard enough, let alone all the way through. Um, Now, some of these cases can be caused by a specific condition. So it's not just standard morning sickness. It's called um, hyperemesis gravidarum. Um, I'm going to Mm -hmm. refer to that as HG for the rest of the the time. Um, And this affects about 2% of those that are pregnant. And it's quite a severe condition. So it causes a severe degree of nausea and vomiting, uh, which impairs a person's normal activity mm-hmm. um, and eating and drinking so that means that the individual becomes um, malnourished dehydrated it impacts the amount of um, vitamins um, you can absorb and obviously that then impacts the development of um, the fetus as well so it's quite a s- severe condition um, we know that it can be passed down in families and if an individual experiences it in one pregnancy it's likely that they'll experience it in subsequent pregnancies as well Um, but despite knowing quite a lot about obviously the implications of it the underlying cause has been really difficult to confirm Mm -hmm. um first first of all they thought it might be to do with um, some other pregnancy hormones so human uh, chorionic gonadotropin so hcg or estrogen um but there's been very limited evidence um supporting this so they're kind of they've been looking at a, another cause of it um because obviously they don't know the underlying cause it's really hard to treat at the minute so uh anti-emetic treatment so drugs that kind of are designed to address nausea and vomiting are largely ineffective so mm. kind of people who are experiencing this kind of have really limited options so um It's it's obviously got an unmet need there. Um, There's now been quite a lot of work that suggests that a specific gene is linked to HG, and this gene is called uh, GDF15. Um, So this gene encodes a specific hormone um, called growth differentiation factor 15, and it's highly expressed in the placenta, and it is secreted by cells exposed to a range of different stresses. Um, so the gene is encoded uh, encodes a hormone called growth differentiation factor fifteen, um, and GDF fifteen is highly expressed in the placenta and is secreted by cells exposed to a variety of different stresses. Um, the really good thing is recently, um, a few different research teams around the same time discovered that the specific receptor that the hormone associates with, um, and that's helped to understand the molecular basis of its action. So the signaling pathways that it feeds into, to try and get a sense of, of what might be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that it sends signals to part of the brain that controls nausea and appetite. And that ties really nicely in, in with kind of hg's clinical presentations to do with severe nausea and vomiting and they also found that gdf 15 levels in maternal serum are increased in hospitalized cases and in patients with second trimester vomiting and Mm -hmm. also those prescribed the anti-emetic drug, so the the sickness drug so it kind of all ties together quite nicely in terms of something might be happening there and so the studies i'm going to be talking about to do with taking that a step further So they've actually now discovered that specific mutations in that gene may directly be linked to HG. Mm -hmm. Um, And the new findings that are published this year were published in uh, BJOG, so the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. And um, one of our colleagues, um, Kate Robinson, actually spoke with the first author of the the most recent study, Marlene Fazo, who was the first author. Um, She actually experienced HG firsthand as well. Um, And despite trying, yeah, so she's got a kind of a a personal investment in in this kind of area of research. And despite trying numerous different treatments when she was pregnant, none were actually effective. And she really tragically miscarried at 15 weeks. So she's kind of understands the kind of the severity of the Mm -hmm. condition and obviously the the lack of treatment and options that people have. So in a study they published in 2018, Marlena and colleagues um, partnered with a personal genetics company and performed a genome-wide association study. When I say genome-wide association study, this is an approach that involves checking for markers or differences across the genomes, the whole genome of many different people, just to try and find variations or mutations that are linked to a specific disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that the differences between, so there was a 100 no, 1,300 HG cases and more than 15,000 controls. So that's quite a large population, you know, size of participants. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest differences between the two groups um, were found in variants of GDF-15, which obviously codes for that nausea and vomiting hormone. Um, so they they knew, you know, there was something there. And they wanted to do a bit more uh, digging. So in 2022, the most recent study, they performed a second um set of analysis using whole exome sequencing whole exome sequencing um, is a targeted sequencing approach and it focuses on um, sequencing the protein coding regions of the genomes obviously Mm -hmm. this gene is protein coding because it uh, codes for a hormone um, and those protein coding regions are called exons Um, and this study I think it's worth noting was um, involved a separate population of study participants so they would completely different sample group from the original study and there were 926 um, cases of hg in there and 660 controls so still a a good number of of, um, participants Um, so they found that the only gene that differed significantly between the affected and unaffected participants was gdf-15 and the only gene with a rare mutation in 10 or more people affected by hg was gdf 15 so obviously there is definitely something there um and i think one of the things that i noted about this study which i think is really good and melina actually highlighted it as well is um it was a diverse participant pool so as well as including those of european descent there was african asian and hispanic descent there and you could still see that trend towards an association in those groups as well um so i think it just shows that obviously then it's generalizable to a larger population not just a specific ethnicity which i think is obviously important when you're looking at genetics um so hopefully obviously now that we've got that you know understanding of you know the genetic cause we might have kind of a therapeutic target there that we can uh, look at kind of like clinicians can look at designing treatments for um, and hopefully there'll be a better diagnosis I guess earlier on or sooner through you know genetic testing possibly in the future just to kind of ensure that this obviously if, if this is is not just standard morning sickness, it might be HD that, you know, these individuals have given the best treatments that we've got, mm-hmm. you know, as quickly as possible. So I just found, obviously, being pregnant myself, just found it really fascinating study. So I, just, I didn't also know that if you escape morning sickness at the start, there's no reason, like towards the end, some women feel poorly in their third trimester, which... I didn't realise as well, which is kind of a separate okay. note. But if you've ha- escaped it in the first trimester, you never know. You might still feel a bit sick third trimester. So,
0: Well, I know all the listeners of been Eight science so will be hoping you don't feel sick at all, Laura. Or...
1: No, no, I'm OK at the minute. A bit tired, but
0: <laughs> bit <laughs> I tired. can't complain.
1: <laughs> yeah. But growing a human is quite tiring. So <laughs> It is.
0: It is. There's a lot involved. But thanks yeah. for sharing that study. It sounds like really, no. really important work yeah. and really well um, researched and, and designed study. it's just it's been a genetics uh, power hour today hasn't it has it, it
1: really has oh. yeah two different very different kind of very different applications study. of it but yeah definitely cool <laughs> genomics
0: uh, but anyway i think laura that's all the time we have for today's opinion aid science yeah. but thanks for sharing that wonderful study with me and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in once again as always please do like comment and share our podcast please don't Hold back your opinions on our podcast because it's been science. Um, Thanks again for joining us and look forward to speaking with you next time. Bye for now.